Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Yo, yo, Dev, what's up? What's up? What's going on? Uh, nothing much. Taking some much-needed rest and self-care time. I'm, I'm taking a little vacation from data collection. Mm, that's good. Taking a break is always good. I'm looking forward to when I can take a break. Yo, it, it, <laughs> it's serious. I, I have been so exhausted going to work every day. How do y'all do it? I do to work every day. <laughs> I'm not accustomed to that. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely worn out, boy. <laughs> At nine to five, taking it out, man. Yo, and I, you know, I, I, I had to come home and just like, you know, really applaud John and be like, yo, now I see why you be so tired when you come home. It's not that I didn't get it before, but like now I'm like, yo, I go to sleep so, every time I come home after day to go. Like, we'll stop for a nap. And then I be um I even give more kudos to people because I be thinking about this too. I mean I don't have kids yet, but I'm like yo, how do people do all that work and then come home and then still gotta take care of their kids? You know what I'm saying? For those few hours as well, and I'm like, cook and, and cook, yeah. help with homework. Yeah. Child, I, I, I wish I had a one that Mega Millions or the Powerball. <laughs> I need some help. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's too I've been crazy busy. Um, currently leading, you know, top of teaching extra classes this semester, but also leading this chairing the search committee. Boy, oh boy, does that take up a lot of time? You know, all the details, contacting people, setting up interviews, doing all that stuff. It's a lot. Um, so that has been keeping me crazy busy on top of everything else I've been doing. So. Yeah, I can imagine. So that oh, so that means that when I go on a job market next fall, you're gonna be my coach. You know what? Information that you know so that could be a little side hustle for somebody. You know, they got life coaches and stuff like that, like like right. academic coaches. You know, for 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 tenure track jobs or whatever, could be cool, man. Yo, so there's this person called the professor is in, and like she quit being a professor. Like she quit her job as a professor and just does this like consultant thing where she essentially helps people get academic jobs. So you oh, gotta, what? You gotta make that money, Tom. No <laughs> better make you. Oh, that's what's up. That's what's up. <laughs> um. Okay, so you know. You know, speaking of what's going on in our world, we have to talk about what's going on in the world. You know, voting, early voting is happening. We have voting next week. Y'all, we got to get out this vote, man. Yes, November 6th, midterm elections. Everybody needs to be out there voting, taking it serious, right? Because it's big. It's big, big, big. I got I got a lot of good feelings about this one, but I just, I just want y'all to go and vote. So, so my dreams can come true. <laughs> yes. You know, like I like it doesn't have to be a full blue wave across the country, but I just need some hope. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I just need there to be like one of these like key elections. Just 
please just just give me some hope because I, I I've been a little hopeless for the last two years. <laughs> <laughs> yes, everybody looking for these midterms, man. I just I honestly feel like. You know, this midterm, these midterms are being taken just as serious as it was a presidential election. Yeah, they were talking about voter turnout, how it is just about at the same level that we typically see elect election. I mean, uh, what do you call that? Uh, Presidential voter turnout. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. crazy. But I did low key. I did hear that the Republican turnout is still larger than the Democratic turnout. So oh, come on, y'all, independents who might lean left and tired of these like crazy policies, and Democrats, come on, we got to get out of here, get out here, and don't believe those polls. Like, don't you know believe the polls is like, oh, Democrats are up. No, just go vote. Don't expect anybody else to do what you should be doing. Like, mm-hmm. we gotta bring this victory home. We're depending on you. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, you know, we want to, I guess, do a little little fun campaign for our listeners. I know a bunch of y'all bought shirts and merchandise, T-shirts, hoodies, whatever. So uh, what I think it'll be cool is when you all go out and vote, because we know you all are going to, wear your BHD hoodie or tee. And with your little I Voted sticker or something like that, take a picture on social media Send it to us, tag us, and we'll repost it and share that with everyone, too, to, you know, show that, hey, listeners out there voting, BHDs out there rocking the vote, and let's keep it moving. Because voting makes you dangerous. You yes. real dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> voting and highly dangerous. Voting and highly dangerous. Oh, yeah. Get get it out there, folks. I, I'm about to take mine. I'm going I'm to do it real big. I'm going to, you know, make up my face. I'm going to curl my hair because it's so viral, y'all. Just got to make sure. Oh, no, yeah, I'll make sure. i make sure I have a nice cut. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to be looking scruffy. Scruffy in these photos when I'm voting. <laughs> you still growing your hair out. You still wear the, like, the, um, you know. The, the um, yeah, I keep it uh, cushy at the top. Okay. Fade, fade on the sides. Um, yeah, I remember I was starting that while I was at Purdue experimenting with it. Because I just, it, it just lasts longer than getting, you know, the low cut. Yeah. But anyway. Enough about haircuts. Also, I know some of y'all are worried about wondering about Old Lord News. Well, of course, this week's episode is a, uh, our second listener guest episode. Um, so there's no Old Lord News for this week because, you know, the episode is all about current events. So we'll just be covering that, you know, throughout the entire episode with um, Jameer Abney. Uh, who, you know, we'll talk about in a little bit once we get to that section. But it was a really good, really good conversation. Um, he's been listening to us for a while, engaging with us on social media. And as soon as we put out the the call to have people come on and chat with us, he was one of the first I was interested in. And we said, come on down. And uh, it was a great conversation. And so, again, keep it up. We're, we want to do this every month. So if you want to be on BHD, just hit us up and we will get you on, I promise, and talk about things that you want to talk about in your area of expertise. Yes, we will make you a star, honey. <laughs> You're going to go viral with us. <laughs> viral. At least we'll try. <laughs> yeah, we'll try. But no, you you will get to, you know, I actually like these uh, episodes because we're meeting people who are supporting us, but you know, it's also a chance for you to like 
just have your voice heard, not just about current events, but about things that you know a lot about, because um, we're willing to engage with those conversations with you as well. And so that's, you know, that's what I'm excited about this episode. We're talking about someone who's an expert, you know, related to admissions and, you know, college things. And, you know, there are some current events, um, you know, and news going on about admissions in the U.S. So, um I, I just like being able to engage with people because we all have expertise. We all are really knowledgeable about something. So, you know, it's current events, but, you know, bring your voice. Yeah, bring your voice. And, you know, I, I enjoy it too. Like you said, we, we get to meet our, our listeners, people support us, and we learn. I learn a lot from them too and what they do. So it's always fun. Learning is always fun. <laughs> but, um, all right. So without hesitation, you know, let's, let's get into this episode and then uh, we'll catch up with y'all next week. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Black and Holly Dangerous podcast. Um, as you know, we've been saying this, you know, for the past couple of months, we are excited to bring on our listeners to come speak with us and engage with us about current events each month. And so, of course, naturally, we have another very special guest, uh, one of our biggest supporters and listeners, Jameer Abney here with us today. How you doing, Jameer? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. No, thank you for joining us today. Mm-hmm. Excited. Uh, We're excited. Yes, yes. Jameer is a, um, he works at Colgate University and is a senior assistant dean of admissions and a coordinator of outreach for opportunity and inclusion at Colgate. And he's just here to talk with us today about current events and and also some of his expertise in the area of education as well. So before we start diving into our topics, we'll just have Jameer uh, introduce himself to the audience and then we'll go from there. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, excited to be here. Uh, thank you again for welcoming me on. I've been listening for the last couple of months and I'm really excited about the work that you all are doing and getting the opportunity to be a part of it is, is particularly uh, special and really cool for me. Um, as you mentioned earlier, um, I work in the admissions space, so I get the opportunity to travel and meet students on the road, um, as well as review admission applications where they come in um, for undergraduate students here at Colgate. Um, I've been in the admission world now for about five years. I'm at Colgate now for a little over a year. Uh, where my role is actually particularly focused on diversity and inclusion work and outreach to, to traditionally underserved and underrepresented communities. And so a lot of what I do is bringing some of my own personal identity as a first generation college student and a person of color to the work and getting the chance to be able to share tidbits and tips about what is uh, a really unique process in getting to college here and trying to work with students to figure out the nuances of how they do that. But in particular, really coaching my entire staff around how you reach out to communities that maybe traditionally hadn't had these opportunities and how you make them aware of these unique processes and um, helping them through the process and really addressing um, some of the, the maladies that exist in communities in terms of a lack of education, particularly beyond the K through 12 sector, but also being able to recognize that excellence comes in a variety of different packages and that there are students who are out there that are very bright and very intelligent and just need the opportunity and the introduction onto some of these spaces to be able to thrive. And so my job is to keep that at the very core of some of the work that we do and make sure that we don't leave out those students who would thrive in an environment like ours, but maybe wouldn't traditionally look at a residential private liberal arts college like the one that I work at. Mm, that's really important work. I, I re actually remember going to a talk um, by an economist. Her name is Caroline Hoxby, I believe. 
I believe. Um, and she was doing work to try to understand how uh, students who come from traditionally, you know, marginalized backgrounds, how to use information to get them to apply to colleges, like you said, that they might not be aware of, that might not be on their radar, um, and how she she did like a intervention. And so she would send them information on different types of colleges, whether they were like really selective or private level arts colleges and seeing how providing them with information would actually expand their horizons and push them to apply to colleges that they would be, like you said, a good fit for that they are, you know, really, really good for in terms of academics, um, but they might ha have otherwise applied to. So I think the work you're doing is important. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And it's it's a very interesting field now in, in the admission space because these positions didn't always exist. But I think as higher education has recognized the need to really intentionally reach out to communities that are traditionally underrepresented on our campuses, you've seen the outgrowth of these diversity recruiters or multicultural recruitment recruiters or people who look at access from a variety of different lenses so that we make sure we don't forget the these students that, again, have the ability and are going to be able to achieve at high levels, but maybe just wouldn't think to apply because there's no one in their corner or no one who's in their uh, community that has, that has taken advantage of these opportunities. And so um, our role as, as diversity recruiters is to like, empower those students and let them know that they can achieve and that we do believe in them and we want them on our campuses. And it does take um, doing some creative outreach to go to unique places, maybe not at the high school. Um, you hear some representatives talk about going to churches or community centers or working with nonprofit organizations where these students find resources. And I, it's just really trying to think outside of the box to make sure that these students understand that they are wanted and they are welcome and we know that they can be successful. Mm. No, that's real. The, you know, this quick question comes to mind. Um, just... I'll ask you, um, since you are definitely working in that field, I've noticed that our schools, even where I'm working, there are, schools are having issues with um, admissions, um, in some cases of trying to have students, uh, like the competition for students getting in. And, and I think, I guess, I, I, from what I heard, is enrollment has been going down nationally, possibly. Um, do you see an impact with that, it's particularly with, like, competition not overall with schools competing to get students. Um, I don't know if it's just because less people are going to school or is it because just just numerically the numbers of students or people applying, baby boomers are gone, what have you, uh, people are having less children. Uh, but as far as that, when it comes to students of color or marginalized populations, is there an uptick in recruitment for them because there's more competition for students overall? Do you see that? I think there's there's been an uptick in recruitment as you look at kind of one is changing demographics. So definitely, I think your point about the decrease in just overall high school graduates and those enrolling in college has changed some of the nature of what's happening, but also demographic shifts where um, you see if you look at population trends that the largest um, growing groups are Hispanic and Latino students and they're in different places than um, some schools have traditionally um, tried to recruit from and, and you've had to we've had to really adjust our outreach to meet the demand of where those students are. I think also geographically there there are particular trends. For instance, um, when we're located in the Northeast, um, the trends show that there just aren't as many high school graduates in our region of the country 
And so you're seeing more admission offices look to places like Texas and California and across mm-hmm. the Midwest where there are just more like raw number of students that exist there. Mm-hmm. I think particularly when you think about the diversity push, a lot of that I think has come from actually some student activism has been a big part of that. Um, students, um, students of color who are on these campuses um, calling admission offices and executive leadership to do more to diversify their campuses, to create more conclusive spaces. And so there's some of that response to kind of student outcry. I think also you've seen a generation of people like myself who have gone into this work because they want to reach back. And so with that, you want that opportunity to work with communities of people like yourself and to be able to be a resource in those communities. And I think that's part of the trend that we've seen. And also I think just just larger national trends around understanding and valuing diversity more widely have helped us get to places where not only do you see diversity recruiters, but there's a very big trend of chief uh, diversity officers that are a part of a president's cabinet. You see CDOs and other types of um, kind of executive level diversity leaders who are being appointed not only at this kind of admission and enrollment level, but at an executive level to lead the strategy around inclusion on a campus more broadly. And I think all of these things work together in that there's kind of this national conversation around not only having diverse communities, but communities that are inclusive and welcoming in a variety of different ways. Mm. So, so speaking of the word diversity in higher education and, you know, trying to get uh, more people of color and from diverse backgrounds on campus, you know, you're in admission. So I'm sure you've heard about this most recent case. I think it, it started last week or the week before the Harvard Affirmative Action Trial, which kind of takes a shot at, you know, diversity on campus. Um do you have any thoughts on that? Have you been following the case? Yes, actually, um, it's, it's come up on, in my office several times. I, I actually follow a Twitter feed that is just giving updates minute to minute by what's happening in the trial. I'm reading uh, publications like Inside Higher Ed and the Chronicle of Higher Education just to see, like, okay, what are the national news cycles saying about this within the field? And definitely for mission offices that utilize um, diversity in their admission review, we just want to know how is the court going to rule on this? Because previous rulings, when you look at cases like Bakke and Fisher, um, previous um, cases that have looked at admission practices at the University of Texas and the University of Michigan, basically what the court has upheld over and over is that race and diversity issues can be utilized as a factor among many of the factor, other factors within an admissions process but you can't, it's illegal to have quotas. Race can't be an overweighting factor above others. So you, so we've been able to kind of narrowly use race within the conversation, basically because the court has agreed with institutions that without these considerations, you wouldn't have as diverse of a campus as you would like to, and that it's important to consider a student's background and also the, the unique challenges that a student may have faced and getting to higher education. And so the concern for many of us is that if you take that out, how does it change the very makeup of some of these campuses? And do we lose the opportunity to bring great candidates as a part of our admission office if we don't consider the context of where they're coming from? And also not only that, like maybe they're great students and we're admitting them anyway, but they don't feel as much a part of the campus if they don't have 
that large of a community that exists there um, as they might have had before. So it's it's really kind of walking a very thin line because it's not to say that those students aren't excellent and can't get in on their own, but we recognize that there are structural barriers and things that exist along the way that may trip up certain students and not others. I, I completely um, agree. Um, I know that the ultimate strategy is, you know, Although this is happening in, like, I think the Boston courts, Massachusetts courts, the ultimate goal is to get this to the Supreme Court, um, which now, you know, has a conservative majority. Mm-hmm. So that it kind of frightens me a little bit. And I feel like overall is like you you mentioned, there's a large misunderstanding about the way affirmative action works in higher education. And like you said, weight is only I meant. Race is only one factor and it cannot outweigh all of the other factors. Um, And as I was looking at some of the the news articles, it kind of gave insight into the way Harvard admissions officers, you know, think. And, you know, many of them say, like, we would not take a candidate who would otherwise be denied and admit them simply because of their race. Like they give tips, but like the tips that they give to a student that could, you know, you know, improve their their chances wouldn't do it enough to where an average student would be admitted over an exceptional candidate. Yeah. And I think that's that's really the entire point is that these aren't like there's no like smoking gun essentially attached to a candidate who is a person of color like that doesn't like, oh, we're automatically going to admit you even if you can't be successful here. Because I think for many of us, it's trying to be good stewards of the institutions that we're a part of. And we want those students to be successful as well. We don't want to admit a student who's ultimately going to struggle and not be able to do their work. And that's regardless of what their racial or ethnic background is. So I think some of the conversation is being misconstrued as to how we utilize race in those conversations and how we think about structural and longstanding historical barriers that exist. And then there's the argument for some people that and affirmative action in general, that it just shouldn't matter. It should be an equal playing field for everyone. But I think then it discounts the history that exists in this country and how we've created structures and hierarchies that have not allowed certain groups of people to be able to access the same type of resources. And I think those are important things that we have to consider when we're looking at these students and trying to understand why they maybe don't look like another student on paper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's, it's a, it brings a question to mind, too, because uh, we talk about most of the time, like I said, people have issues with affirmative action. Anytime something seems to p- possibly benefit uh, marginalized populations of people of color, uh, where everybody don't throw up the red flags. But working in admissions, I'm curious about this. How maybe not for your school, but I've heard about in others when things like um, your like, you know, legacy or your or your parents or somebody graduating from that school and that carrying some kind of weight into the admission process. Um, is that true? Do you see that uh, in, in, in your institution or others? Definitely. The, the legacy conversation is a big one that comes up in the other side of, of how we talk about affirmative action, I guess you could say, because definitely like legacy applicants have an opportunity, one, to understand an institution better, but also to have that relationship to the institution already baked in. And there are even different levels 
of that legacy relationship? Is it a legacy who donates? Is it someone who has a building on campus? Is it someone who has done a lot of charitable work or is volunteering for the institution and on down the line? So I think there are different degrees even when you look at a legacy applicant. But of course, if there is a big opportunity for a potential donor or you don't want to upset um, someone who has a building on campus and those types of things, like those are conversations. And I think no one wants to talk about that side of the coin, but I think it's just as important when you think about, well, that's a level of affirmative action or some level of preference that exists there. And actually many institutions um, will, when they send out their publications or they're printing the statistics, will also um, print uh, statistics on legacy applicants or applicants who are um, sons and daughters of alumni or their grandparents or other um, relations um, exist on campus. So definitely those are things that we track. Those are things that we're aware of as we read within the process. And even within that, there is those delineations of, okay, how deep is this relationship and how much does that potentially impact what we may do? But it is something that there have been books and articles written about just as much as there have been books and articles written about this work for um, underrepresented students on campus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's important. Um, just because, again, that especially when you're talking about things like legacy, you talk about history um, and just, you know, just systemic oppression across the board. When that stuff happens, you know, it's going to be skewed racially. It's, it just is what it's going to be. People who are access to these institutions for generations and also the ability to accumulate things like wealth to purchase and, and buy buildings and donate to campus and use that as an advantage to get the next generations into those same institutions. Um, you know, just within our country, without a doubt, you're just going to see that just be very, very much, you know, so racially benefit whites probably more than than any other race just because of just the historical uh, aspects to it and access overall. So. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important in general. Um, I don't want this case to turn into um, a situation where we aren't able to, like you said, address these historical gaps and opportunities uh, and access. Because, I mean, that that's the ultimate point or was the ultimate point of affirmative action. We did things that were wrong, that created these huge gaps in, you know, financial attainment, educational attainment, um, and opportunity. And this is a way to help close those gaps. And it's just amazing to me that people forget history when discussing why this is potentially necessary um, or the right thing to do. Definitely. I think, I think we're so quick to want to lose the context of what, what happened before us and why, why we got here in the first place. Because if, <laughs> If people of color and women have been being admitted to these schools all along, we we, may, we might not be here, but we know that's not the truth. No, that's true. So, so one other thing you kind of talked about because you you know you talked about diversity, but then you also talked about the inclusion piece and you know how students who are from marginalized backgrounds how they actually feel on campus. Um, and so I wanted to talk a little bit more because um, you mentioned or, you know, before this conversation, you talked about or you mentioned the concept of survivor's remorse. And I want to talk about that a little bit in the context of like inclusion on, on campus and just, 
yeah, expanding opportunity, but what happens with with students from marginalized backgrounds who, you know, move on, but maybe they're the first or the only in their family doing that now? Uh, definitely. I think I think one of the challenges that exists for many campuses is you get this idea, you want to have a more diverse student body, you send out your recruiters, you go to these schools with um, these majority um traditionally underrepresented communities on your campus and you recruit them, you get them excited, they apply, you get them to enroll, and then they show up and there's not resources for them. Or if you do have certain resources, maybe they're not up to the par for the number of students that you're now trying to bring. You don't have the administrators um, in your student life offices to actually receive these students and it becomes a bigger issue from that perspective. So it's not just having the representation on the campus, it's having the resources to receive them, to help them transition, especially for campuses like Colgate and many others that are predominantly white and maybe might be the most white spaces that some of these students have ever stepped into and how do they deal with that. And then you also have issues of things like what you call imposter syndrome, where some of those students may feel like they don't belong or they're not smart enough or they're not able, they may not feel like they're up to par and up to caliber with some of their some of their peers who have been going through this college preparatory um, work for their entire lives. And you're admitting them because you know they can do it, but you also have the have to have the necessary resources on campus to help those students transition. And so institutions have started to work to try to develop a variety of different ways to do that. But in a lot of ways, it happens because you're playing catch up um, once you have those students on your campus. Um, one of the things that you'll see are bridge programs that are maybe happening over the summer and helping those students by taking transition courses or they might be taking courses where they just learn about what it is to be a college student and what things they should expect and what they should see and what they might see in the communities that they're a part of. But there's a whole area of research that has looked at the social emotional side of how these students feel when they come into these spaces and not only looking at things like imposter syndrome and maybe not feeling good enough, but another phenomenon known as survivor's remorse or survivor's guilt. And um, actually this research has come out of a comparison of the emotional response for these students, much like what you would see from survivors of um, some kind of a natural phenomenon like a tornado or a hurricane or survivors of the Holocaust and um, the ones that made it through, but maybe family members didn't and other um, disasters that have happened in human history. And basically what, what has been found by researchers um, when they've looked at um, scales of kind of emotionally where those students are, depressive scales, things like that, is that these students show the same types of symptomology as people who have gone through um, what, would we, what we might view as more severe types of experiences. But basically you have a young person, as you alluded to, Daphne, that may have been the first in their family to ever leave home, not, not let alone go off to college and to have this very unique experience. And especially if they're coming to a place like Colgate that is predominantly white, has a nearly billion dollar endowment, there's lots of resources, you have students that are driving um, Range Rovers and um, Lexuses and BMWs and Audis and they're just out of their element. And then there's this questions of what did I do to deserve this? and the people back home don't get that. And uh, this research speaks to students trying to straddle this dual world of home and where they come from and their community, 
and this space and place that is very, very unfamiliar to them. Um, one journal article that um, I wanted to highlight um, was a 2013 article written by Tate Williams and Hardin that um, looks specifically at first-generation college students. And I'm trying to develop methodology to help them manage um, these symptoms and really thinking about not just coping mechanisms, but really starting to effectively understand what you're experiencing and being able to talk through that experience of what you're actually going through and a level of thinking about um, what, what you're seeing and, and what you're trying to work your way through and not just dealing with it, but having ways and strategies when you get those triggers to kind of talk through your feelings and understand, okay, why do I feel this way? And this is mm -hmm. something called logotherapy that's been utilized with these other groups um, that have experienced this, the survivor's guilt or survivor's remorse. But I think the particular thing there is that the practitioners on campuses, the um, student life professionals, and even us in the admission space have to be aware of, okay, these are the types of things that these students may deal with. And of course, you can't blanket that to every single student, but you need to have resources. You need to have some type of a first-generation program, maybe a center on campus where those students can go. Um, there's a big push to have more um, clinical um, therapists of color and people who identify as non-binary uh, non in terms of their gender and sexual identity to have those students just see other people who are like them in particular positions. And this is particularly key when you look at faculty relationships, because one of the key indicators of success um, on a college campus is that they have a connection to a faculty member, and in particular, a faculty member that they can identify with. And so having faculty who identify with them can help with some of these issues. But really, it's just an important component to think about the inclusion piece of it is not just having that representation, but also do I feel a part of this community? Do I have agency here? Am I accepted? Do other students who aren't like me listen to my concerns, my emotions, my feelings? And I think a university can, can do a lot to go the extra step to help those students with the transition, but also continue to hammer home at the supports and the resources that are available around the campus that are going to help these students navigate what could be a completely different world, but also helping them understand, okay, when you go back home, it's okay that it's a little bit different. It's okay that your worldview is a little bit different. And maybe having people help them navigate, like what does that first conversation look like when you're home over Thanksgiving or you're home over winter break? Or also having resources just to help those students get home. This is a huge concern when you look at students who maybe come to a campus, they're able to get to campus, they're excited, and then everyone goes home for, for Thanksgiving and they're like, I don't have money to go home. What does the school have resources or include that in their financial aid to make sure they're able to get that? Or their discretionary funds to allow them to be able to make the trip back home during the year, not just at the beginning and the end of the year. And I think that's, that's a gap that we see for some students. Um, you also see lots of articles and um, publications about students being hungry. And so schools have developed food kitchens and free food pantries and kind of started to normalize, hey, it's okay to go grab the, food, the free food so that these students don't feel like they're missing something or they don't have um, everything that they need to meet those basic needs. And so there's a lot that's being done to try to, I think, step up to some of the missteps as we try to diversify our campuses, but maybe weren't prepared on the front end to actually receive these students and they come to the campus bright-eyed and excited but then feel like maybe they've been lied to or things were disingenuous 
And I think we as admission officers have to do a great job of being authentic on the front end. But then we also have to support our colleagues that are receiving these students by letting them know the types of things that we're seeing that these students may need to really find that success and sense of inclusion within the community. Mm -hmm. That's so real um, in a lot of ways. I mean, one, I think, yeah, you're right. Resources are important. I feel like schools are doing uh, the best they can or a really good job. You see, trying to recruit when that is a priority on the agenda within admissions or get, figuring out ways to bring in increased diversity. Uh, but I think at least from just my observations, um, yeah, when it comes to the resources and when students get to these spaces where they are you know, very few, uh, talking about students of color in particular, um, and this culturally, if the school is not prepared for that, like you said, I mean, I just see the impacts. Uh, it does kind of take the wind out of the sails of those students, because um, especially when you're first generation, I mean, you're, you're excited, you know, and, and all the emotions with that, your family's excited, because, um, you know, you're the first to go to school and you have the, all these expectations and then you get there, uh, you may feel alienated, you may feel like the school doesn't care about your, your particular set of needs or not prepared for it. And, you know, embarking on that new journey with all these different emotions. And as a, you know, as a professor myself, I see it. I see it like from students who are socialized and ready to, to take on higher education. And then a lot of the first generation students of color, you know, struggling academically because of things I think that are related to what you talk of, like survivor's remorse, um, feeling bad when, you know, they're at school and something is going on, you know, at home and they feel like they have to put all their time and energy uh, to what's going on at home or or, or talk, helping their parents out or helping their brothers out um, and not letting them down, right, uh, because of where they are now. And then sometimes that impacts their schoolwork, whereas, you know, students who don't have to deal with that or, you know, because in our first generation, their parents understand, you know, academic life, um, you know, they, they handle it just completely differently. And, you know, as being a faculty of color, I can also say, you know, the students of color stay in my office. Um, and most of the time we're not talking about schoolwork, you know, uh, and they'll be in there for an hour, two hours. And we're just talking about what's going on in their life, helping them, you know, understand certain things or or just, you know, navigate or just let them express themselves and get it off their chest so that they can leave there feeling a little bit better. And so just from my perspective, yeah, I'm definitely interested in looking at these things like local therapy, like you talked about in these articles, because sometimes even just as an academic, you know, we're trained to be ready to teach and educate. Um, but sometimes I feel under, like I'm, I'm not servicing my students to, in the best possible way when they're coming in there with these other issues. You know, I'm not trained as a therapist or a psychologist or a counselor. And, you know, I care for them and I want them to do well. And they're coming to me because I can relate. I was also a first generation, you know, student of color. Um, but I don't want to, you know, I want to be at least equipped to an extent to be able to say, okay, when a, when a student comes in here, I have some knowledge or some exercises or skill sets to at least make sure I'm not doing more damage, um, you know, to them or in the situation. So, I think, yeah, a lot of what you said is a very, very real, real thing going on in higher education with first generations, for sure. Mm-hmm. You, you said a word. And we're, we're definitely going to link those, um, the article title, so that people can, like, talk about this and think about this, because it's real. Um, and I'm, I'm doing field work at a high school, and I just look, I see the responsibility that some of these children who will be first-generation college students I see the responsibility they have now working, like you said, supporting families and how that is not 
how that will not only shape their experiences as a first year student, but how it is also shaping where they're thinking about applying because they are taking into account what they want to be able to do for their family and where they're deciding to apply. So it, it, it's all related. Mm-hmm. It's and all another related. another thing that kind of just came to my mind too is like what I've noticed, even from at least my school is, because there's conversations about immigration and stuff like that. And a lot of my Latino students being first generation, a lot of their parents, you know, don't don't speak English. And so there's like always a lot of issues that I see where they have to go back home or even try uh, the parents trying to get, um, uh, you know, status or citizenship or, you know, potential uh, issues with law enforcement. Tons of times I get questions uh, from students about that. And a lot of times students, you know, they drop everything and go back you know, to help their family because, you know, they're worried. And so they really take a big hit. And it's like, it would be great if, you know, schools can just kind of be prepared for that, right? For students that are coming in that may have parents that may be dealing with immigration issues where they can probably serve as a bridge or some kind of mediator to make sure the students are not, you know, hurting academically um, because of these kind of situations. And you can't tell a student not care about their family, right? Um, and it makes sense that they're doing what they're doing, but it would be great if schools just pay a little bit more attention to that to make sure that, you know, they're taken care of or they won't, won't mess up their entire education. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I think just being aware of some of this this research, another article that I was looking at by Austin Clark, um, Ross and Taylor from 2009, so a little bit older, was looking at how now how imposter syndrome mediates into this guilt and then depression and kind of this downward spiral, specifically looking at African-American college students who were first-generation students. And so it all kind of can snowball for a student very quickly. And I think the example that she gave Tyrell is really a good one because that's another way that um, a different population of students may be dealing with a variety of different factors that become challenging. And I think for, for us as universities, just being more aware of what's happening contemporarily and issues that students might have to deal with can help us develop strategies to be prepared, but also to be proactive. I think it's it's great when it's not always a response, but you already have something in place or you have um, things that trigger when a student needs support. I know in particular with the immigration issue and kind of where we are um, politically right now, and I know we'll get into this a little bit, Um, moving forward, but campuses have to be prepared. These students need to know, are there attorneys available? Are there people they can talk to? Are there immigration specialists on the faculty that they might speak with? What do you do if you need to get back home? Like, how do you take a leave of absence? Or is there a way to work around so you can come back? Are, Are there people available that are going to be able to help you navigate? If you say you're an undocumented student, what does that look like? There are more of those students that are on college campuses now we're telling them we want them to come but are we ready to receive them with all the different challenges that they may face one of the big ones being do you have financial aid to actually help those students if they need it to be able to attend your campus and then if you have issues with the family are you ready to step in as an institution and provide any level of support because that student may be far away from home they may not know who to ask and what to ask um, they may need to be able to be ready to be mobile at any moment's notice if for any reason um, there were immigration officials on your campus asking questions. Um, one of the great things right now is we're protected um, under HIPAA and FERPA laws in terms of like sharing data. But that's not to say that that's going to stay the case. And so what do we do to make sure that we protect these students 
if we're going to encourage them to apply to colleges, especially ones that are far away from home. So you, you kind of mentioned po- politics and political, and I, I guess we could, um, you know, pivot to that kind of discussion. Um, it is a current events episode. Um, and so talk about because what happens now with the midterms and moving forward, it kind of dictates some of the, the some of the things you mentioned, like, you know, whether some groups will be eligible for financial aid, you know, whether um, affirmative action will continue to be, um, you know, enacted, you know, across college campuses. Like a lot of that will be dictated by how we vote uh, over the next mm-hmm. few years. Or um, even trying to make education free, you know? <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Oh, mate. Yes. Or or paying back student loans hey. or the forgiveness. So. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, that's my vote. Whoever want to do that, man. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that means you'll vote for Trump if he make a. No, nah, no, nah, I won't go that far. <laughs> I, I keep, I keep paying my loans. <laughs> Yo, that's a, that's a sacrifice. I guess that's you putting your money that, where your mouth is. That is a sacrifice. I'm sorry. <laughs> I will pay them loans happily. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah. So um, we're coming up on the midterms. Mm-hmm. What What are you guys feeling? Um, yeah. So again, everyone listening, right? Next week, five, six days from now will be the midterm elections. And so hopefully everybody will, who listens to us, will be out there voting. Um, uh, one thing that I'll tell all the listeners now is, um, Take a picture. Take a picture with your with your BHD mem- uh, merchandise on, and then we'll we'll t- tag us, and then we'll feature you on the website and social media to promote the midterm election. So make sure you do that. I just want to throw it out there really quickly. Um, but before we get into you know some of the, the aspects of the voting and some of the about registration and, and some of the key races, I do want to talk about something that kind of goes on with current events and pop culture um, because you know I'm not going to talk too much about Kanye, uh, but we all know recently he's been on some wild stuff you know we briefly talked about it a couple episodes ago with him hanging out and hugging trump and all that interesting things but one of the common things that i keep hearing him talk about is oh you know uh, talking about republicans democrats and saying you know republicans used to be for black people and you know what's the issue you know with, with voting with republican or being republican and again what i said we talked about this briefly again last episode a little bit you know Kanye says he does not read. He's not well informed on these topics. So that's already a red flag where people should not really listen to anything that comes out of his mouth. Uh, But definitely when it comes to politics. But I just want to take a quick moment to just quickly touch on what he's been saying about the Republican Party. Right. Um, You guys can chime in at any point if you want as well. But, yeah, it it was true. Right. We talk people talk about Lincoln's party, et cetera. with the Civil War and the push to end slavery, right, which was, of course, many people already understand was more of a political move than him actually feeling that way in the kindness of his heart, right? Um, but because of that political move and and how it really helped the Union in the Civil War, uh, you know, Republicans kind of stayed on that agenda with just kind of protecting or focusing on the rights of of former slaves and, and people of color over time. Um, so initially, yes, the Republican Party, the way everything was set up, was supporting blacks way back in the day. But even that can be debated as far as how much and how much they were willing to do, um, right? It was mainly because of, anyway. Uh, but over time, right, um, the Democratic Party, and first I'll just quickly touch on, you know, 
the idea of big government, conservative and liberal, right? It comes from the, the those kind of like federal power philosophies. Um, but anyway, the Democratic Party after the Civil Civil War, uh, you know, pretty much the West was pretty much wide open when it comes to trying to get voting blocks and getting votes. And so both parties were trying to figure out what they needed. So the Democrats, this is when they began to really try to adopt big government policies because a lot of the people in the West, unlike many of the in the Northeast and the North, were farmers. And so a lot of these big government kind of welfare, government assistance policies really got the attentions of the voters in the West. And so this is when the Democratic Party started to have these kind of philosophies. Um, but again, when we talk about one of the interesting things when I was looking this up is, you know, uh, the Civil Rights Act and Republican and Democrat and the kind of idea that Democrats were uh, against it, right, or Republicans were against it. Um, it really had nothing to do with uh, party, uh, the voting of the Civil Rights Act. It really had everything to do with region. Um, so pretty much 94 of um, the Southern Democrats in the House of Representatives in the South, okay, only seven of them voted for the Civil Rights Act. And there were 10 Southern Republicans also, right? And zero of them voted for the Civil Rights Act, right? So pretty much all the all the politicians in the South, whether they were Democrats, whether they were Republicans, did not support the Civil Rights Act. However, in the North, okay, there were uh, the Northern Democrats, um, 145, not, uh, 145 voted for the bill, nine did not vote for the bill. And also the Republicans in the North, 138 voted for the bill, 24 did not vote for the bill, right? So both Republicans and Democrats in the North supported the Civil Rights Act, but virtually all the politicians in the South did not support it, right? Um, so this is one of the key things where we have this debate where, like, oh, Republicans, Democrats, and who care for who? It was mainly a thing about region. So after the passing of the Civil Rights Act, this is when we began to see the split and the, and the Republicans adopt more of what is known as the, uh, the Southern strategy mm-hmm. because they begin to win key Southern states, even though um, the guy named is Strom Thurmond, uh, who left the Democratic Party, and he teamed up with Richard Nixon, and they won like, uh, you know, pretty much all the, uh, most of the, the Confederate Southern states in the South using dog whistle politics. And to date, pretty much since then, they've always had those states on lock, right? Um, and And so it's always kind of been a thing about region more so than race and why they did it, but the Southern states were the ones that were really trying to uphold things like the, you know, white supremacy and white privilege and have all their policies catered towards uh, the white majority more so than the blacks over time. And then you start to see the, you know, then more because of the Republicans focus their, their, their constituents and their voting districts to the South. And then they adopted more of the philosophies that we see today with people like Trump, per, uh, you know, perpetuating and propagating and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I just want to kind of give a quick background on that so people can at least just be clear as far as like, yes, the Republican Party at one point supported, but it was for political agenda and the Democrats and the, and the platforms have changed, but it's not the way that Kanye is trying to make it seem. It was so simplistic in that, oh, it's just okay to run to the Republican Party. Well, no, it's true. Their agenda does not, the reason why they're Republican Party today is because their agenda was created to not cater towards the black audience, right? They were catering to the white Southerners who had nothing to do with the Civil Rights Act. So that's important to understand the current state of the Republican Party because that's what they are now and that's how they got formed to to what we see. So it should be no surprise when we see people like Trump doing the things they do and the support he gets from 
white supremacists and others, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think is I'm happy you mentioned that. Like things change over time. I'm not going to vote for a party simply because you know 150 years ago or however many years ago um, they were the party of Lincoln, who happened to you know sign the Emancipation Proclamation. I'm not going to do that. You know, they don't get to ride on that, you know, now. Um, and it's not not to say that Democrats are perfect because, you know, like you said, things have, you know, flipped over time. But you're not going to get me to vote against my best interest like you see some of these poor Southerners do just because they care so much about race. <laughs> and another thing, reason I'm happy you mentioned region is because when you even look at the races in the South where um, Democrats have a potential to win, they have to run very differently. You know, they actually have to be a little bit more conservative to be able to win some of these mm-hmm. conservative, you know, predominantly white votes in this region. And if you see a Republican in the North, they have to be a little bit more liberal. You know, they you can't run Southern Republican politics in the North in the same way that you can't run Northern Democratic politics in the South. It's not going to work. So I do like your point about region because it is really important. So, um, I know was, you definitely want to talk about preparation to, to voting and being prepared for those of you getting out there. Some of the steps you should take. Yes. Um, well, right now, you know, at this point, it, we can no longer register, but you can check your registration which is really important. Another thing to do, I've been seeing too many stories, especially in these key states where um, people's like absentee ballots are either not being sent or not being counted. So especially if you are voting absentee, please follow up if you have not received your ballot um, or either you can usually check like uh, the county like website, the, the voting website in case some error has has been made with your uh, absentee ballot because that happened in Georgia. There were uh, people were being rejected. Uh, Their ballots were being rejected over things like signatures, like, oh, your signature didn't match your license. And, you know, maybe you signed your license 25 years ago and, you know, things change. Um, And so there were a lot of I think there were like upwards of like 500 that were rejected over like very simple things like that. So please check to make sure your uh, ballots are actually going through. Um, and make sure um, you search online uh, voter online guides where you can, you know, look at the candidates and see where they stand on different issues. There is a website called votesaveamerica.com. Um, and, you know, you can find a lot of information about are you registered, how you can get involved, how you can save your state. They have the voter guides um and you know they just have a frequently asked question uh page where you can you know find out a lot of information so it's really important that you get out there and vote i voted this week um i didn't have on my bhd shirt but you best believe when i get home <laughs> i'm gonna put on because I, I took some extra i voted stickers so i'm gonna put on my bhd shirt and you know, <laughs> Post it recreate up. it yeah because i want to be on the website too that <laughs> Put us up there, yep. I'm gonna be wearing mine when I'm out there. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. 
And I, and I think it's particularly important at this time, like when we talk about the history of the parties, just think about the history of what it took for certain people to get to vote. Like if you're mm-hmm. not sure where you are, you're not sure who to vote for, educate yourself, but also recognize that privilege. Like this, like this was worked for, fought for, like this is important. So make sure you take advantage of your, your democratic right to be able to vote because we need it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I I saw these memes online because you know last week you know we had the 1.6 billion dollar Mega Millions which I didn't win I'm very sad about that <laughs> and I saw these memes that were like uh, if you can buy like a Mega Million tickets because you know you have a chance you know you can vote and take that same chance because you know people will say things like oh if I vote it you know it's not going to make a difference anyway so why do it you know you're spending that two dollars or that two hundred dollars on those make million tickets probably not going to make a difference at that moment but you're taking a chance on something so just go ahead Hans, take a chance uh to that same point i've seen the memes where it's like the the older generation of people and typically these are more conservative uh folks that are posting these saying that only these people are voting none of the young people will vote so we're gonna win like young people like vote like that's not yeah. true we care about we care about our democracy as well mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, um or you gonna say time no no oh no yeah i was just gonna say i just want to just reiterate that point and i know i've said it uh maybe once or twice but you know especially for people of color man in this country voting is is something where blood was shed for this right uh, and i just feel like sometimes you take it just a little too lightly um and I, when i taught race crime and punishment last semester i mean this is one of the biggest things that stood out to my students is you know people black folks were literally lynched just because they showed up at the voting booth, you know, mm-hmm. that's how they and they knew that their lives were at stake, but they wanted to exercise that right no matter what. And and they lost their lives to vote. So that for you, for us. Right. And so we don't have to deal with that kind of extreme violence anymore to vote. So we have to go out there and, and pay respect and homage to those people and our ancestors who did all they could to make sure that we can go out there and cast our vote to make a change for us in our communities. And so it's a real sad thing when we don't take advantage of that, but yet we complain about all the struggles and everything we have in this country. When now here is your chance to make that difference. So make sure you do it. And one one final meme that I that I've been hearing about, and it kind of gets into a discussion of key races that people should be looking at. Um, I've seen memes where like, if voting didn't make a difference, people wouldn't be trying to suppress your vote. Mm-hmm. Like they would not be working so hard to make it difficult to vote. And it's it's true. Oh my goodness. All of those voters that were purged in Georgia by the person who's running for governor, because he's yes. the <laughs> he's the official over I'm the voting sick. system. And it's it's just crazy. So like, you know, when I did, when I early voted, the, the majority of the people that were out there that had signs, they were like literally camped out in front of, uh, you know, the voting station. They they were older white people. Um, and I saw some like older black people coming in to vote. And so that's why, you know, we do have to get this BHD, you know, picture campaign out here because it's so real. Like they aren't using these tactics for no reason mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. so yeah and, and not only that like 
encourage like encourage your family members talk to your neighbors talk to your friends reach out to people if you know you're going to vote and you're not sure if other people are voting like get it get them armed get them get them going get people excited because like as as Tyrell alluded to like this these rights were really there was bloodshed for this and people that gave everything for you to have the opportunity and I think it's important that we take advantage and you do all you can to get your community and watched out at least to get to the battle box to vote. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, no doubt. So um, let's talk about a couple of the key races that people should be paying attention to. And especially if they're in these areas, we, you know, want to inform them. I'm sure they know about it, but they, we can, doesn't hurt to discuss it a little bit further. Um, and I know you already mentioned the Abrams versus Kemp. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is definitely one of the bigger ones for sure. Yeah, and then there's Gillums and DeSantis. I mm-hmm. believe that's how you pronounce his name. Um, I'm, and then there's um, O'Rourke versus Cruz in Texas. So you know these three southern states where you know the at least the polls. Although I don't necessarily trust the polls anymore, but like polling and the excite, excitement around these Democratic candidates, I'm like, man, I hope at least one of them like pull it out. Mm-hmm. I, I hope at least one of them win. I, I can't stand Ted, Ted Cruz. I, <laughs> I, I really don't want to I won't lie. I don't know if I can Well, you know, if if just anecdotally, I, I recruit in Texas. It's one of the territories I go to. And just driving around, I saw a lot more Beto signs than I thought I would. So I think he's got a real chance. Okay. okay. He's charismatic. So, you know, come mm-hmm. on, O'Rourke. Um, I like the um, Gillum um, from his debate. Oh, mm-hmm. my God. When he, I mean, I feel like it was just a perfect setup. Uh, when he said, you know, I'm not calling you racist. I'm just saying the racist think you're racist. Did y'all hear when he said that? Oh, no. That is... Whoa. He, he set it up so nice because he talked about somebody um, <laughs> from uh, DeSantis's a contributor to his, uh, his campaign, gave him money and is pretty much outright racist because he's on record of calling Obama uh, Islamic, uh, Islamic nigger. Right. Um, and so he went on and he said that when DeSantis was you know, told about it, he, he said he wasn't going to give the money back and has used it in his campaign. And so then he kind of finished that statement saying, now, listen, I'm not I'm not trying to call you a racist, but I'm, I'm just saying the racists think you're racist because, you know, they're supporting you. And boy, that was, you know, you should see DeSantis's face, man. <laughs> oh, that was clever. That it was, was so clever because you can't really get out of that. Right. I mean, especially yeah. if it's true. And, you know, it's just a good play on words. And it's like, hey. Like, I don't about. have to say it, but we're all thinking it. All of uh-huh. us, including the racist. I think <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. You don't got to look at me, but look at, you know, who's giving him money and what they're saying. You know, I was like, oh, that's such a great setup, man. It went viral. But I'm like, you know, stuff like that, especially to me with the when things like that go viral and we're talking about the younger generation and millennials or whoever. You know, I think that also catches, you know, oh, oh that's cool. That was good. You know, and, and, and can excite them. Close to the election, which hopefully it will. Although I'm low key mad because DeSantis is trying to use uh, some like 
trying to say that Gillum is corrupt. So in 2016, we just I just found out that in 2016, there was some type of FBI operation looking at like political corruption in Florida. And uh, DeSantis is trying to call Gillum corrupt because he uh, accepted two Hamilton tickets when he was in New York. Um, oh my goodness. Like reported as a political contribution, I'm guessing. Um, and, you know, Gillum is, con- or, you know, refuting his claim saying like the tickets were given to me by, or they were, because the tickets were handed to him by his brother, he was under the assumption that, you know, this was not something that needed to be reported or, or whatever it was. But it's just kind of like, wow, the FBI trying to set people up. And two, like, you know, this is a pretty, you know, it could be a, the excuse that some people need to say, oh, I'm going to go with the other guy. You know? Really? Mm-hmm. Like, really? He went to a play? <laughs> like, like, they really trying to hold on that? Come on, man. That's yeah. crazy. Mind you, Pence, you know, has I think he received Super Bowl tickets and some other tickets for fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah, Hamilton tickets are hard to come by, but come on, y'all. <laughs> okay. You bugging on that one? Yeah. Come on, F- FBI. I'm sure there's a lot of other things you could be looking at than who's getting Hamilton tickets. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so speaking of other like current events, political news that has gone viral and that is just like crazy. Uh, I'm sure you guys have heard about the bomb incidents with uh, Obama, the Clinton, mm-hmm. yep. older, uh, now Robert De Niro and mm-hmm. Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. And I hope they catch this person. But clearly this person is whoever's doing this. It, it's clearly political. I mean, mm-hmm. it's clear without question. Um, and even in Trump's response has been trying to say it's not or, you know, or, and even Trump, he, you know, he hasn't called them, you know, to see if they're okay. Everything's just like, he really doesn't care, man. He really doesn't about, about what's going on. But yeah, this situation is crazy. I do want to know why they targeted Robert De Niro. Like, why does, where does his name fit in this? Like, is he a big democratic contri- contributor or something like that? I think he's been very outspoken against Trump. Yep. Okay. Uh, I also think he, you know, is, is he probably probably somebody mad because he he think he married to a white woman, a black woman, oh, right, yeah. as well. He married to a black woman, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's very vocal about these things. <laughs> so I know that's upsetting some folk out there, you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, I love Robert De Niro not because he's married to a black woman and I'm a black woman, but I just I like all his movies. You know, he's yeah, he's a great actor. Like, you know, he just tells it like it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, man. I mean, that got to be a scary thing too, you know, for all of them involved. But definitely, you know, Obamas. You got kids, you know, family. Like, and they're still trying to target you, um, Clintons. All of them, man. It's a scary situation. Yeah. And I'm glad that you know Secret Service caught it all too before anything, anything can be pulled off. Because that would have been like, think about how devastating that would be, right? Ooh, I. You know what? I. I hope nothing like that happens because there was some politician that was like, uh, you know, afraid of, you know, where we were going. He's a Republican, though. Where we're afraid of going in politics uh, is getting violence. And he was trying to allude to the idea that the the left was maybe, you know, inciting violence. But when we think of all the incidents that have happened over the years is usually like somebody that's extreme on the the right that mm-hmm. you know are doing these like really crazy things. But you know, I hope nothing serious happens because, y'all, I don't, I don't 
would do if something happened to Obama or some political stuff. Like, oh, yo, oh. the streets would be lit. I, okay, I'm a oh, say. man. Y'all want to think about that reaction, man. That, you know, just, yeah. And the emotional response, just the collective emotional response and, and, and feelings. That, yeah. yeah. So calm down, people. I mean, you know, this is serious, but stick to the voting, the voting and even protests. There's nothing wrong with pro. Like, even if you're on the right wing, I'm not going to say you don't deserve your First Amendment rights, you know, protests. But like the vi- the violence, I'm not down with it at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, you're right. OK, the last viral political story that we have to talk about is mm-hmm. Megyn Kelly. Oh. <laughs> NBC. Did y'all actually see the clip that causes all the controversy? I didn't see the clip, but I saw the response and the reactions for sure. Same. Same. Okay, so I'll, for our listeners, I'll explain. So the other day, you know, on her morning segment, she kind of had like uh, three other panelists and her. They were talking about some university had uh, put out a policy about how students could and could not dress for Halloween. And so there were certain costumes that were going to be off limits. Like you couldn't dress as a cowboy. You couldn't dress as a, a native person. You couldn't dress as a, a as a Mexican person. Like you know, kind of like wearing a sombrero and the the mustache. Um, and that got into her. She went on a rant about us being so PC. Like, you can't really tell me how to dress, you know, for Halloween. Like, what happened to my First Amendment right and all of this. And so at first, the panelists were... Um, they 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 were kind of on board with her at first like oh you know some of these costumes are are harmless but then you know there was questions raised about like is it okay to dress as a nazi or to dress as anne frank or or to put on blackface uh and she talked about how oh when i was a child it was okay to wear blackface (laughs) (laughs) the And so even her panelist was like, you know, yo, I think most people with common sense know that there's like a line you don't cross. Like who wants to dress as a Nazi? Who would really want to dress as like Anne Frank? You know, this this Holocaust victim, like who wants to put on blackface? So even the panelists, one was Jenna Bush, George Bush's uh, daughter. And, you know, people were just like, mm, I don't know, uh, you know, about all that. And so, you know, it just... You know, she defended blackface essentially because it was okay when she was younger. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I was and I was shocked that um, because you know, I mean, I don't follow Megyn Kelly or anything like that. But when they said that NBC fired her, I was like, wait, this is on NBC? Like you on NBC? <laughs> I just automatically assumed that it was Fox. You know what I mean? Um, oh, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, cause she oh she got a little cushy deal. So she left Fox after like all the Roger L sexual harassment, you know stuff. And uh, it what pissed me off about her coming is one, you know NBC trying to get these right wing you know Trump voters to NBC, and they displaced 
some very popular African-American women, uh, you know, reporters and correspondents. So Tamron Hall, you know, she was the host of like the second segment of the Today Show, which Megyn Kelly took over. And she chucked the deuces like, you are not going to put me on a back burner for this person who's made a career off of being like this Fox antagonistic reporter um and now she's out of there but the the thing is she hit the lottery because she had they had like a a no break contract so even if they fire her she's gonna get her 69 million dollars crazy like (laughs) how you get fired and get a 70 million dollar check that's wild (laughs) yeah um i need that contract but Oh my goodness. I'm just mad she got it. But nobody at NBC, like all of the anchors um, on like the Today Show and like, you know, Lester Holt and the people in the evening, like they all pretty much went in, like, yo, what's wrong with you? She doesn't, she doesn't fit in. Now she's going to get her $69 million and go right back to Fox and probably be talking all types of mad junk Mm -hmm. about NBC. Mm hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. And blackface, that's crazy. All right, well, um, I guess, yeah, we're running out of time. And um, yeah, that's crazy. Still just thinking about this Mac and Kelly thing, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, But no, anything, anything uh, we missed, anything I want to talk about before heading out? Um, Comments, anything? No. No, it was a good conversation. No, yeah, I had a good time. Um, and Jameer, then thank you for, for for reaching out and and listening to us and coming on and talking with us and awesome perspective, man. We appreciate all that you do as well with um, you know, working in admissions, but also having you know, the 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 consciousness to 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 try to make an impact from your own position and keeping things and and our people in in, in your minds as far as like you know looking out and services and resources and looking up the research and applying what you've learned to just make experiences better for the students trying to just do something better with their lives, man. So I really admire what you do for sure. Well, thank you. And I appreciate this platform to be able to share some of that. I I know that there are other people like myself that are, that are trying to do this work with those students kind of at the heart of, of why we do it. And I know it's, it's an uphill battle. There's a lot of work to be done, but, you got to start somewhere. And so having the opportunity to be in the room where those decisions get made for me is one of the ways that I, I try to, to give back and put kind of my mission and my passions into action. Nice. Nice. You know what? I'm going to start. <clears throat> I never, let's end up what you told us, you know, we talked about your career. We talked about your work, but what do you, let's end talking about what do you, what do you do for fun, man? What are some of your hobbies? Oh man! Well, I uh, I just got engaged uh, in May, so I spent a lot of time with. Oh, uh, congrats! With congrats! <laughs> our, uh, our dog. We have a, a four-year-old uh, pointer mix that we adopted when he was about two months. So we spend a lot of time with him uh, when we're not traveling for work. Uh, we travel for leisure. We like to explore and get to see different places. I'm also a big sports fan. A little okay. upset with the NFL these days, so. <laughs> I've been sticking to the basketball and other yeah, sports. Yeah, I'm so happy when NBA came back around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, what am I going to do? During the <laughs> but, but yeah, love love sports. And I'm also a big um, – I, I just love to learn. So I, I read, um, try to stay up on podcasts like like uh, like yours and be, be knowledgeable and be educated because 
I think it's so important. Like we argue and we debate, but what are you bringing to those conversations? And also like just being a learned person and, and understanding what's happening around you. And historically, I think is, is fascinating. So I've always been a big reader. My, my grandmother um, who passed away when I was younger, she was a librarian. And so um, books have always been a part of my life. So I enjoy those opportunities to kind of step away and just enjoy the reading for the reading sake. But a lot of my time is just family and friends and uh, taking the time to relax when I can, but doing stuff like this and getting to, to share my passions professionally is also one of the things I enjoy most. Nice. Cool. That's cool, man. That's cool. Well, congratulations. I yes. hope you all have a beautiful engagement and beautiful marriage and all that good stuff and travel and, you know, and continue to do the work that you do. Um, because we need more Jameers. Yes, we do. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you, man. If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.